Hey, this is Stephen Dubner, and you are about to hear a special bonus episode of our new Freakonomics-inspired podcast, Tell Me Something I Don't Know. It is live journalism wrapped in a game show, and the idea, as with Freakonomics Radio, is to tell you things you always thought you knew but didn't, and things you never thought you wanted to know but do. The theme of this episode is collections, and our panelists are the Dean of Self-Improvement, Tim Ferriss, Ann Pasternak, who runs the Brooklyn Museum, and Eugene Merman, one of the smartest comedians on the planet. Funniest, too. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on iTunes, Stitcher, all the usual outlets. To attend a live taping or to appear on the show, visit TMSIDK.com. That's for Tell Me Something I Don't Know. On social media, we're at TMSIDK underscore show. And as always, we're also at Freakonomics, too. Thanks for listening. Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. know. All right, how's this? In Philadelphia, there is a collection like no other on earth. We have the world's largest preserved human colon on display in the world. It is eight feet, four inches long. It's a foot and a half in diameter. At the time of death, it had 40 pounds of fecal material in it. (laughs) We have the preserved conjoined livers of the famous conjoined twins, Chang and Ang Bunker. We have the bladder stones of Chief Justice John Marshall. We are the only place in the world where you can actually go see pieces of Einstein's brain. Um, We don't do normal very well here. (laughs) Welcome to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I'm Stephen Dubner, and that was Dr. Anna Doty of the Mütter Museum of the College of Physicians in Philadelphia. Thanks to Dr. Doty for introducing the theme of tonight's episode, Collections. Something I Don't Know is a podcast. It's also a game show that's also live journalism where contestants try to tell us their most interesting IDKs or I Don't Knows. To judge these IDKs, we've put together a panel of remarkably learned people. Would you please welcome the author and self-experimenter Tim Ferriss, Brooklyn Museum director Ann Pasternak, and one of our very favorite comedians, Eugene Merman. We're going to start with Tim Ferriss. Here's what we already know about you, Tim Ferriss. Uh, Your first book, The Four-Hour Workweek, was turned down by 26 publishers before becoming a gigantic bestseller. We know that uh, your latest book is Tools of Titans and that you host a hugely successful podcast called The Tim Ferriss Show. Tim Ferriss, keeping in mind the theme of tonight's show is collections. Tell us something we don't yet know about you. Well, I have uh, two adult collections that come to mind. The first. Wait, wait, wait. Adult collections? <laughs> oh, I'm getting there. The first is gourds from South America that are used for drinking something called yerba mate, which is my stimulant of choice. And the second is 
antique Japanese saddles, which I only reward myself with if I hit some major milestone or goal in my life. Uh, that's Tim Ferriss and Pasternak. We know that before becoming director of the Brooklyn Museum, you ran the public arts group Creative Time, whose wonderful projects included the tribute in late 9-11 memorial and Kara Walker's Domino Sugar Factory installation. And Pasternak, we also know that you gave your daughter Paris the middle name 99. So, Anne Pasternak, tell us something we don't yet know about you. Well, since the theme is collecting, I want you to know that when I was a small child, I wanted to be a cat. So I ate from my cat's bowl, and I got found out because I was collecting tender vittles. (laughs) And my parents discovered them under the bed, and after wondering why the cat seemed to be starving to death. Very good. Our final panelist, Eugene Merman. Let's see what we have on you, Eugene. Born in Soviet Russia, moved to the States at age four. Designed your own major at Hampshire College in comedy. Uh, Don't know whether that says more about you or Hampshire. We know the Village Voice named you New York's best stand-up comedian, and that on Bob's Burgers, you are the voice of Gene, a character based on you. So, Eugene Merman, what are we missing? Tell us something we don't know about you. Um, I like to collect small failures. (laughs) And... The crown jewel of these failures is when I was in middle school, I received a negative eight on a math assignment. We are very, very happy to have you all here tonight. It's time to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Panelists, here's how it's going to work. When contestants come on stage to deliver their IDKs, you'll have a chance to poke and prod, ask any question you'd like. Once we've heard all the contestants, you will vote on a winner. You'll judge their IDKs on three criteria. Number one, does it surprise you? Is it something you truly did not know? Number two, is it worth knowing? And number three, is their IDK demonstrably true? To help with that demonstrably true part, I'd like to introduce our real-time human fact checker. Would you please welcome New York Times best-selling author, A.J. Jacobs. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. AJ is host of the new history podcast, Twice Removed, from Gimlet Media. For his first book, The Know-It-All, he spent 18 months reading the entire Encyclopedia Britannica. So, AJ, that's pretty good fact-checking credential. you have any weak spots in your encyclopedic knowledge? Honestly, I'm, I'm a little weak on the letter V. <laughs> kind of skimmed that one. So maybe don't ask me about Venezuela or Van Dyke. But other than that, I got you covered. Noted. Okay, it's time to play. Tell me something I don't know. Tonight's theme, you'll recall, is collections, the things that we search for, the things that we organize, things we treasure. So would you please welcome our first contestant, Allison Amend. Hi, Allison. Nice to have you. What do you do? Hi. Um, I am a lifelong and suddenly very happy Cubs fan. And uh, I am also a novelist. I've written a short story collection in three novels, the most recent of which is called Enchanted Islands. Excellent. I'm ready. Our panelists, Tim Ferriss, Ann Pasternak, and Eugene Merman are ready. Fact checker A.J. Jacobs has never been more ready in his life. So, Allison, what do you know that's worth knowing that you think we don't know? Okay. So, you've decided to forge an old master painting. You think that you need period-appropriate paints, maybe an aged canvas or an old frame, but you don't need any of these. What do you need? What do you need? And I know the answer. You kind of run a museum. Well, I'm not sure, but does it involve technology? Um, It does not, actually. 
Does it involve finding someone, you said not technology, but on Craigslist, perhaps in China, to do the dirty work for oh, you? Oh, yeah. No, but you know, that's an excellent idea. Yeah, yeah. Does it involve driving over a real nice painting? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that would forge anything. Would it be convincing to an actual conservator? You do, no, that's part of it. You actually don't need it to be convincing for oh, an actual wait a conservator. Second. So we're talking about a painting. Yes. It has to be a painting. It won't pass any chemistry, spectro, yes, whatever spec tests. Analysis. No, no, none yeah, of that. No. Mm-hmm. Allison, you want to put us out of our misery I will and put tell you out us of the true yes, story? Yes, yes. Actually, the only thing you really need is a museum membership. Um, and here's why. So uh, throughout the 80s and 90s, Englishman John Drew sold over 200 forged paintings to galleries and to private dealers. His business partner was a mediocre painter who often used vinyl paint and KY jelly. Um, how did Drew fool all the experts? Well, he had provenances. Provenance is the record of who has owned a painting since it left the artist's studio. Ironclad provenances are the only way to prove a painting is indeed by the artist whose signature is in the lower right-hand corner. But the provenance itself can take many forms, several of which, it turns out, are pretty easy to fake. So John Drew faked the provenance of his forged art by donating forged pieces to museums' fundraising auctions. Then he asked if he could do some research in the museum and gallery archives, and the institutions were only more than happy to let their generous donor come into the archives and do research. While he was doing his quote-unquote research, he smuggled out catalogs, letterheads, stamps, and stickers from museums like the Tate, the Victoria and Albert Museum, and the Institute of Contemporary Arts. Then he had down-on-his-luck friends sign papers claiming to own the paintings, and he doctored the old catalogs. So he inserted the images of the forgeries into the catalogs to show that the paintings had a history. And then he snuck all the catalogs back into the museum archives. So now whenever he wanted to sell one of the forgeries, museums and collectors were only too happy to line up and pay millions for these KY jelly paintings with their ironclad provenances. Genius. Ann Pasternak, I have to ask you, that might work at the Tate or the V&A, but yeah, not at the right. Brooklyn <laughs> Museum. Not at the Brooklyn Museum, because actually we have our conservators actually analyze the materials to make sure they're not forgeries. Yeah. Is that because of John Drew in the 80s and 90s? Uh, very well, maybe, but yeah. actually forgeries are on the rise, even with contemporary work. So mm-hmm. um, buyer beware. How was he caught? Um, he was caught, actually, because the museums got wise to his KY jelly and vinyl paint. Yeah. Um, the problem with these, as I'm sure you know, Anne, is that um, it's in no one's best interest to, to sh- prove that a painting is false, right? It's not the owner's interest. It's not the museum's interest. It's not the conservator's or the ex- expert's interest. And so people are reluctant to come forward and, and you know, expose it as a fake. Anne, does, does a museum like yours have tons of fraud insurance or...? I'm putting that on my checklist right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right, before we finish up with Allison Amen, let's check in with our fact checker, A.J. Jacobs. A.J., faux provenance is really the secret, Allison tells us, to selling forged artwork. What say you, sir? It definitely checks out. I was was particularly taken with the fact that the forger used KY jelly in his paint. So I, as a diligent researcher, I did some more work on that. Turns out there are a surprising number of non-bedroom uses for KY jelly. It's used in a lot of Hollywood special effects, including the dinosaur venom in Jurassic Park and the alien's saliva in Alien. Uh, Also, it's recommended for fitting keys into tight padlocks. That is not a euphemism. That is just what it says on the Internet. By the way, I just wanted to add 
one other, my favorite forgery fact, which is that Michelangelo was a forger. In 1496, he made a figure of Cupid, the the Roman god, and then he put acid on the sculpture to make it look like it was ancient. And then he and the dealer conspired to sell it to a cardinal, uh, maybe not the best idea. Oh, that Michelangelo. I knew there was something fishy about that guy. (laughs) Allison Amon, thank you so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. Great job. panelists later you will be asked to rank all our contestants and pick a winner for now would you please welcome our next contestant Susanna Dicker hi Susanna what do you do I'm a linguist and a cognitive neuroscientist at NYU and Utah University and I also create interactive art installations with my collaborator Matthias Ostrich so uh, the floor is yours what can you tell us Okay, so you're at a party and just killing some time by striking up a conversation with a random stranger next to you. Now, under one scenario, you feel like you could walk into the sunset with this person and live happily ever after, right? Um, There's also the alternative scenario where the conversation is actually an excruciating sequence of awkward silences and you're just trying to find a moment where you can escape. So what are some possible factors that can contribute to us connecting better to some people than others? So I'm thinking just with your background in cognitive neuroscience, does it have anything to do with their visual resemblance to someone they know? Or Smiling. Is one person smiling, smiling a lot? Um, like maybe not too much? Not what like about weird? things like, <laughs> like... Or like darting their eyes? Yeah. Um, no, what about if you think about what can go wrong in a long-distance phone call or a Skype conversation? Timing. Timing, yeah. So the delay, right? The delay can really mess you up. And that's because timing really is... Key. Timing... Is everything. It is. You're, it's kind of like, you know, some people are better dance partners than others, and our conversations are also sort of like a dance, because if you're just a fraction of a second too early, people will think that you're interrupting. If you're a little bit too late, then they'll think that you're not listening, or you haven't been paying attention, you're not interested. And our brains pick up on these cues, um, and they are doing this by virtue of our brain waves that are sinking into the rhythms, their own rhythms, to the rhythms of our surroundings. And so then you can ask whether maybe if we're feeling like we're on the same wavelength with another person, our brains are actually literally in sync with each other. And so to test this, we collaborated with artists, scientists, and educators um, in what we dubbed a crowdsourcing neuroscience data collection approach, where um, over 2,000 museum and festival visitors volunteered their brains and participated in the Mutual Wave Machine, which is an interactive installation that translates brainwave synchrony into light patterns. So if your brains are more in sync, there's more light. And if there's no synchrony at all, there's complete darkness. And we found that people who are more connected to each other actually did indeed synchronize their brainwaves more often. And interestingly, there's also some social traits and some personality traits that predicted it. So if you're more empathetic, you're more likely to synchronize. And we found that... Um, just by virtue of giving people this feedback, this actually made people connect more to each other, uh, especially strangers. So we may have accidentally created something along the lines of an empathy machine. <laughs> um, how much variance is there? Like you take the five or six of us on the stage. How much variance is there in brainwaves among, let's say, you know, in this case, six Americans? Variance in brainwaves. So the basic rhythms are fairly similar. So we have different our brains kind of operate at different frequency ranges, and some are dedicated to different kinds of processing, right? So I'm speaking at a certain rate, and the brain waves that are oscillating at that rate are following my speech. And that's going to be fairly similar among you. 
But you have some like basic rates that differ across people, just like heart rate might differ slightly. So how about if you have an engaged couple mm-hmm. and um, you said there's no light between you? So would that, would that be advice <laughs> to not get married? Right. Um, so that's actually reversing uh, the whole uh, research process. Um, I got that question a lot, right? So can you put this uh, as a dating app or, uh, or something along those lines? And we can't, we can't really use brain research as a diagnostic tool, at least not at the level that I'm investigating it. And we actually put disclaimers on our consent forms. Like this does not give you any information about whether you should get divorced or married or any, any of that. So if there's a, have we studied whether there's a correlation between you know, people lighting up and then their timing being good in bed? Um, I uh, have not done that in the research. I am not aware of people having done that research. You don't have people put on this machine and then have sex with each other at your... No. <laughs> but they should, um, right? AJ Jacobs, Susanna, and her colleagues built what she calls an accidental empathy machine. Um, how legit is her story about brainwave synchrony? My skeptical fact-checking brainwaves, which I believe are my gamma waves, uh, I wanted a little more double-blind, hardcore, scientific, gold-standard studies, Mm -hmm. which I couldn't find online. I'm rooting for it, but I don't see that it uh, it has been fully proved yet. I would agree, actually. So interesting. Thank you so much, Susanna Dicker. Great stuff. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Lizzie Redman. Lizzie, what's your story? What do you do? I run a nonprofit here in New York that teaches nutrition and wellness to children. All right. What do you have for us tonight, Lizzie? So I'm going to start with a story. Um, When Maria de' Medici married King Henry IV in 1600, um, that's King Henry IV of France, the marriage took place by proxy meaning that Henry stayed in France while the wedding took place in Italy. This in and of itself is certainly strange, but stranger still, in place of the absent king, a statue of the king in his likeness was set in front of the bride. That statue was made not of clay or wood, but rather of sugar, which was commonly used for sculpture making during that time period. Hmm. So you're telling us, or me, at least two things I didn't know. One, you can be married in absentia, but your main IDK is about sugar as a medium for sculpture, yes? Yes. So what's really interesting, many of us might think that cane sugar made its way onto Western tables by way of dessert, but it actually was as art in, in the form of these sugar sculptures European noblemen imported sugar from North Africa during the medieval and Renaissance periods, and they took also from North Africa this practice of using sugar to make a paste that could then be turned into sculptures. And sugar made the perfect ingredient for this because of its whiteness and its preservative nature, but also even more importantly, it was desired for its rarity. So to display a statue of sugar on your table was to display your possession of something that was incredibly scarce. The rise of sugar sculptures during this time period can also be tied to the popularity of feast during the Renaissance period. Feast and sugar were about a display of wealth. Um, One example of this happening is a feast that was held for Queen Elizabeth I in 1591 by a nobleman. Of course, among the entertainment was a series of sugar sculptures of castles, armies, and all manner of animals. 
Europeans did eat sugar at this time, but not in the way that we consume sugar today. Sugar was used as a medicine and also as a savory spice to be added to a meaty dish. It would be not until Europeans began producing sugar on their own in the colonies until sugar became something that would be a significant part of the common European diet. How was sugar used as a medicine? To cure thinness? Or what was it? <laughs> right. Where people had a lot of different ideas about what was good for the body. Vegetables and fruit were actually believed to be bad for the body. When it comes to sugar, um, the, the sort of phrase of a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down is certainly at play here. So if you were going to take an herb, um, sugar was a preservative. So it would help to preserve the ginger or whatever medicinal thing that you were using. I like the era back when sugar was medicine and you had beer for breakfast. That just <laughs> exactly. sounds like a good time. Do yeah. those sugar sculptures still exist today or did, were they eaten? <laughs> I guess. Um, I, I don't believe there's any from the 1100s through 1600s still in existence. Um, the practice is still in place and there was um, a an installation at the factory that I don't know, Anne, if you want to share about that, but... So uh, Kara Walker is an extraordinary artist who deals with issues of race and history of uh, the United States, uh, also through a lens of slavery. And um, I had access to the Domino Sugar Factory in Williamsburg before it was being demolished. And when I first walked in, there was about, I don't know, um, eight inches thick, the floors and molasses and the ceiling and the walls were just sort of bleeding, sweating molasses. And I called Kara and I said, I think this venue would be interesting to you. And uh, the next morning I woke up around 6 a.m. I had about 36 drawings from her. And actually over a period of six months, every day practically, she had a new idea. And the final one was to create a giant sphinx um, that was uh, both a sort of very strong, uh, beautiful, but also stereotype of a black woman coated in white sugar. And it was a quite extraordinary sculpture that really dealt with race and how we deal with black women's bodies. And what happened to it once the warehouse came down, factory came down? Well, um, the materials were recycled except for the sugar. And, and the only the only piece of it that still exists, because it was you know a temporary material, um, is one of the the paws or hands. Mm. A J Jacobs Renaissance sugar sculptures and much much more. So interesting. What can you tell us? I looked into it, and the the list of sugar sculptures and some of these pieces is ridiculous. The one eyewitness wrote of seeing sugar sculptures in the shapes of snakes, adders, snipes, frogs, toads, worms, dolphins, whales, pikes, carps. I do have one quibble, which is that uh, the upper class in Elizabethan times definitely did eat sugar, not just for medicine. Uh, here's how one visitor described Queen Elizabeth. He wrote, her face is oblong, her nose is a little hooked, her teeth black, a fault the English seem to suffer from because of their great use of sugar. <laughs> Lizzie Redmond, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. It's time now for a short break. When we return, more contestants and we make our panelists tell us something we don't know. If you'd like to be a contestant on a future show or attend a future show, please visit TMSIDK.com. On social media, you can find us at TMSIDK underscore show. And remember to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We will be right back. 
Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our panelists tonight are Tim Ferriss, Ann Pasternak, and Eugene Merman. A.J. Jacobs is our fact checker, and our theme, you will recall, is collections. We'll get back to the game in a second. But first, earlier, we did a quick survey of our live studio audience to find out what they collect and why. And we've selected three of our favorite answers. Tim Ferriss, who do you have? No name given. (laughs) And it reads, antique kitchen utensils, period. My mother makes me, period. So that can be read a lot of ways. Okay, Ann Pasternak, what do you got there? So this is by somebody with the initial CR. I collect ashtrays, not sure why. I don't smoke. Oh, is that a haiku? It's beautiful. Thanks. Eugene. Um, well, Tessa D. says, I collected corned beef cans because I liked the design. (laughs) (laughs) All right, AJ, Jacob's our factor tonight. I'm curious, are you now or have you ever been a collector of anything? Actually, yeah. As a kid, I collected air sickness bags from from major and minor airlines. So... uh, and I had a pretty good collection, about 50 of them. I recently donated them to the Air Sickness Bag Museum. The museum has a curator, much like Anne. It's, um... <laughs> <laughs> we'll have words later. What he, uh, his name, in case you want to get in touch, is Steve Upheave Silberberg. That's his middle... I don't know if it's a given middle name or... <laughs> All right, let's get back to our game. Would you please welcome to the stage our next contestant, Chang Han. Okay, Chang, would you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, I'm a PhD student at New York University's Center for Cosmology and Particle Physics. All right, Chang, wow us. In the 1960s, during the height of the Cold War, the U.S. suspected that the Soviet Union would violate the nuclear test ban treaty and secretly test nuclear weapons. So, in 1967, they launched the Vela satellites, which would collect data on gamma radiation pulses emitted by nuclear weapons tests. Later that year, the satellites detected a flash of gamma radiation, unlike any emission from known nuclear weapons. In fact, the signal wasn't even coming from the Earth's direction. What were some of the proposed theories to explain this gamma ray burst? Was Bruce Banner involved? <laughs> <laughs> You're asking us, Chang, um, what was the actual cause of these gamma ray bursts that were feared initially to be, or what was the explanation? What were just some proposed theories? What did people come up with? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, people probably thought aliens were trying to say hi. This All right, game over. Well done. Yeah, game over. There you go. Yeah. That's, that's, if that wasn't one, one of the them. theories, yeah. I will be furious. <laughs> Supernovas, some type of phenomenon. Those were definitely proposed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something related to that. So is this a trick question where everything that the panelists say is true instead of false? So far, they've been... Did some people bit... think it was from a pair of shoes someone left in outer space? No. Aha! <laughs> The birth of a new star. Um, no. <laughs> Not the birth. The death of an old star? Yeah. Okay, so hundreds of theories were proposed. Initial speculations about what caused the burst included uh, se- secret weapons tests behind the moon or some sort of unusual activ- solar activity. But later, when astronomers realized that the bursts were coming from all directions, 
some of them proposed, uh, signals and transmissions from extraterrestrial civilizations, or even flashes from extragalactic alien warfare. Uh, the truth is, we still don't know exactly what causes these so-called gamma-ray bursts. Uh, thousands of observational and theoretical papers have been written on them, and now we think they occur when extremely massive stars explode or when two compact objects, such as neutron stars or black holes, merge together. Astronomers now know that these gamma-ray bursts are the most energetic uh, explosions in the universe, and they come from distant galaxies far beyond our Milky Way. And during the millisecond to minutes that they last, they release as much energy as the sun releases during its entire 10 billion year lifetime. Wow. And if one occurs near the solar system and is facing Earth... That's not good, is it? No, it's not good. <laughs> it could cause... I'm no scientist, but uh, the way you led us to that one... Yeah. It could cause mass extinction. Uh, in fact, some researchers argue that uh, these, a gamma-ray burst actually caused a mass extinction millions of years ago on Earth. So while the U.S. failed to uh, find existential threat from the Soviet Union, and the search for answers about gamma-ray bursts still continue today, well past the Cold War, uh, we did find a much more catastrophic possible end to life as we know it. <laughs> Eugene, I have to ask. Yes. You were a child in yes. the Soviet Union, and I'm curious if you perhaps were responsible for some of these rogue gamma ray bursts. Let me just say, I didn't want to make a big deal, but I was testing some weapons behind the moon. Uh, A.J. Jacobs, gamma ray bursts that were not Soviet nuclear explosions. Instead, they were coming from outer space, but we still don't quite know why. Is Chang telling us uh, what seems to be the truth? Yes, yes. Thank you, Chang, for giving me something else to worry about. Uh, <laughs> we can add it to the list of the, uh, the super volcano under Wyoming, which is about to burst any day now. Uh, Do we have to be afraid of the super volcano or just Wyoming? <laughs> But they, I looked up, and there's another. There's a delightful list of other cosmic catastrophic events. There's the classic is asteroid collision, of course. Of course. And then uh, some astronomers, I thought this was interesting, they say there's a 1% chance Mercury's orbit could be made unstable by Jupiter's gravitational pull and send Mercury hurtling into the Earth. So you got that. You got that going. Chang Han, thanks for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. And now, let's please welcome our final contestant of the evening, John Earl. John Earl, what's your story? What do you do? Uh, I'm a writer and audio producer here in New York, and uh, I used to live in Russia and was a journalist there. Okay, very good. Uh, what do you have for us tonight? Okay, if in Russia I accuse you of knocking pears out of a tree with your dick, what am I accusing you of doing? Wait, wait, slow down. Eugene, I'm sure, as a child in Soviet Russia. I feel like it's one of the phrases that my parents never used when I was a kid. So it's an accusation of some sort, is what you're saying. Yes. Good. It's a metaphor. Does it involve sex? No. I'm out. Does it involve exaggerating? No. Is it a common accusation, like, hey, there you go again, knocking pears out of the tree? It's, it's not an uncommon accusation. Is yeah. there a female version of this? 
it, it applies to women too. It is a is it a, an insult or a compliment? Uh, it can be an insult or it could be an observation. John, um, I think uh, you've told us something we did not know plainly. I gather there's a little bit more to the story, though. Uh, no, oh, that's a, <laughs> it. Just it's an expression that means to do nothing, to to be dicking around. Because there are better ways to get pears. <laughs> Now, why do you think Eugene was unfamiliar with this uh, well-known phrase? I, I think probably when his parents brought him here, they tried to protect him from this sort of language that I'm going to be talking well, about tonight. Do you know how to say it in Russian? Huyem grushia kolachvod. All right. I need that for later. And is that standard Russian? Uh, it's, it's mat. What is mat? Uh, basically, there are two Russian languages. There's standard Russian, and then there's mat, which is the language of profanity. Uh, here's how it works. So there are four really bad Russian words. There's hui, yibats, bizda, and bled. We just lost our Russian censorship and, license. <laughs> <laughs> and over hundreds of years, Russians have developed literally thousands of variations on these words that can mean anything under the sun. This means that Russians can have entire conversations using almost nothing but swear words. Entire plays and novels have been written in swear words. And they do this because mat adds oomph. So it's like in English you could say effing before every word, except in Russian they add dicks and whores and vaginas. Colorful people. <laughs> so, so for example, you get words like, like huyova, which means terrible, or ahuyena, which means amazing, and they both contain that root hui, dick. But the real fun, in my opinion, is in mat's huge collection of idiomatic phrases. Uh, there are literally there are more than 10,000 by one estimate. So I can tell someone off by sending them to the dick. Um, I can put my dick onto something, uh, which means to ignore it. <laughs> or I can throw my hands up and I can say, the dick knows, which means that nobody knows. But here's why, here's why you should care about this. Because the Russian government, over hundreds of years, has tried to crack down on it, seeing it as a language of dissent and resistance to authority. So this means that if you take any period in Russian history and you look at the government's attitude towards Mott, it's a good barometer for the freedom of expression in general. And so when they crack down, you know that kind of more repressive times are coming. Uh, case in point, um, a couple of years ago, President Putin's government banned Mott from concerts, um, from the cinema, um, from public presentations. Uh, in fact, if I'd given this exact presentation in Russia, I would have been fined at least $40. That's not so bad. That's not what people are afraid of. So I think Mott is going to be fine. I just want to reassure everybody, Mott's going to be okay. It's going to survive. It survived Stalin. Um, I think the real question is, what's going to happen to Russia in these new conservative times? And to that I say... The dick knows. Of course it does, yeah. What are some of the most versatile vagina expressions? Ooh, you can say that something is pizdata, which means it's great. That's from the word pizda, uh, vagina. Would it roughly translate to pussy-tastic? Now, what's the or was the origin of Mott having to do with prisoners, or was it military? Do you know? I have a particular theory that I'm a fan of, um, and it's that Mott and the word for mother, Mott, are basically identical. 
So it was basically like a Yo Mama joke that became an entire register of Russian. AJ Jacobs, uh, I'd love you to tell us more about Mott and feel free, if you're capable, of telling us in Mott. <laughs> I am going to use English, but maybe I'll throw in some swear words. Uh, Putin's government, a couple of years ago, they banned lacy underwear. Uh, Yes, underwear with less than 6% cotton was supposedly bad for your health. And uh, and this was not received well. Uh, some women went into the streets, actually in Kazakhstan. It was also banned in Kazakhstan. Women went into the streets wearing underwear on their heads and chanting, Freedom to panties. <laughs> so there you go. This is what authoritarianism really looks like. <laughs> John Earl, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. And that concludes our round of audience contestants. I think we've all learned some amazing stuff tonight about collecting art and data and swear words. Let's please give all our contestants one more hand. Thank you so much. The panelists have been handed their score sheets. They will use a ranked voting system to pick their favorites. And the contestant with the highest overall ranking will be tonight's winner. He or she will join us back on stage to play the next round with our panelists. So panelists, remember, when you're ranking the IDKs, there are three criteria to consider. Number one, did the contestant tell you something you truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? So who will it be? John Earl with Russian Cussin? Chang Han with gamma ray bursts from outer space, Lizzie Redman with her sugar sculptures of yesteryear, Susanna Dicker with brainwave synchrony, aka the accidental empathy machine, or Allison Amen with forging art for fun and profit. While the votes are being tallied, let me say this. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, please spread the word and give it a nice rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to tell me something I don't know or if you want to come see the show live, visit TMSIDK.com. You will see our dates in New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, and Minneapolis. You can also find us on all the usual social media outlets at TMSIDK underscore show. Okay, the panelists' votes are in. Once again, thank you so much to all of our contestants. Sadly, there can only be one winner. Our four runners-up, however, will each receive a certificate of impressive knowledge, <laughs> which is suitable for framing. And tonight's winner, tell me something I don't know, with his IDK about Russian cousin John Earl. Congratulations. All right, um, John Earl, what prize could we possibly give you as a reward for what you've taught us tonight? Well, do you remember uh, what we heard at the top of the show about the Mütter Museum's very strange collection of human body parts? We have the world's largest preserved human colon on display in the world. It is eight feet, four inches long. It's a foot and a half in diameter. At the time of death, it had 40 pounds of fecal material in it. So unfortunately, John, uh, federal law prohibits the transportation of calcified poop across state lines. But what we can give you direct from the Mütter Museum's gift shop is a plush replica of the colon itself. They call it the mega colon. And we've got an image to show you here. 
Now, that is not only a conversation starter, but we're told it doubles as an airline pillow. So congratulations. Now, John Earl, you also get to play, whether you like it or not, the next round of our game, along with our panelists. We're calling it the reference round, and it works like this. The four of you will each have just a couple of minutes to come up with a good IDK about tonight's theme, collections, but you get a reference book to help you out. And tonight, we are using encyclopedias. Uh, so what we've got here is a 12-volume Encyclopedia Britannica Micropedia. We are going to give each of you now your encyclopedia, and you will each have a couple of minutes to come up with something from that book that we don't know, that's worth knowing, and that's true, that pertains somehow to collections. All right? Go. While they're working, we'll take a short break. When we return, we'll hear what they came up with. Our live audience will then choose the two best IDKs, and those two will go head-to-head -head in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Welcome back. It's time for Tim Ferriss and Pasternak. Eugene Merman and John Earle to tell us something we don't know about collections based on their speedy reading of one volume of an encyclopedia. So first, John Earle, our audience winner, we're going to start with you. Tell us something we don't know about collections drawn from your volume. Got it, right. So um, I got to sausage immediately, but then I turned the page and I got to sausage tree. Um, so I'm going to tell you about sausage trees. Um, Okay, it's a tropical tree, the only species of its genus. It grows 6 to 12 meters, 20 to 40 feet tall, and bears sausage-like fruits, which hang down on long, cord-like stalks. It's native to Africa. Can you knock the sausages uh, out with your dick? <laughs> That's lovely. John Earl, well done. Uh, thank you very much. Eugene Merman, who had a, a great volume of the encyclopedia, I understand. What did you come up with there? Well... Let me just read you this sentence from the entry, Asian Games. In general, game-foe performances were better than those of the Asian Games, but only two festivals were held. <laughs> <laughs> and Pasternak. So who here knows what a weak fish is? It is the opposite Any... of a strong fish? It's a sea trout. Who so, Ann Pasternak, you're telling us that a weak fish is a sea trout. That's right. Did you know that before? Did not know that. Did anyone out there know that? Nerd. <laughs> and I will say this. Of course, I, I remember that from the uh, reading the encyclopedia. The weakness of the mouth muscles uh, is the reason for the name. It's the weakness of the mouth muscles, which often cause a hook to tear free, allowing the fish to escape. Oh, so the weak fish is the strong fish. Uh -huh. By dint of his escape yes, method. up is down. That's that right. That is really was nice. Was that in here and I didn't read that part? That was in uh, another source. I see. That will go unnamed. Wikipedia. Does it end with Pedia? And, <laughs> yeah. So I love that we're using Wikipedia to check the Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> Tim Ferriss. All right, so here's the jump-off point. So Nisei, Japanese likeness painting, form of sketchy portraiture that became fashionable in the court circles of 12th and 13th century Japan. 
So along the lines of likeness paintings, there is a lesser known genre, uh, and in modern Japan it would be called hentai, which is basically perverse. And if you really dig into Japanese comic books and anime and whatnot, you will find that there is this one type of scene that replays itself, which is tentacle porn. And this, this has been presented as something that is a new perversion, that is a, a recent development in Japanese comic books. But in fact, it has existed for more than 100 years. And there are people who collect woodprints and so on related to tentacle porn. Hmm. I'm sure they're in the collection of the Brooklyn Museum. There you go. <laughs> the more you know. There you go. It is time now to stop this and for <laughs> our live audience to vote. And in a moment, your voting instructions will appear on the screen. Tim Ferriss told us about um, what he liked to call Japanese likeness paintings, but was in fact tentacle porn. Uh, Ann Pasternak told us about weakfish RC trout. Eugene Merman uh, told us something about Asian gaming, and John Earl told us about the famed sausage tree. Your two top choices will go on to the final round, so get out your phones, follow the texting instructions on the screen right now. All right, the live voting has closed. The votes have been tallied. And our second place finisher was John Earl told us about sausage trees, which means Tim Ferriss with tentacle porn takes the round with 33.9% of the vote. So Tim and John, the two of you, go on to the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Congratulations. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, here's how it's going to work. In a moment, we will reveal a topic that's related to tonight's theme, collections. Then you'll each have a minute with no research materials other than your own big brains to come up with something that we don't know on that topic. What is our final round topic? Well, one of the most common things to collect are souvenirs, of course, memories of our travels. A.J. Jacobs, as you heard, collected barf bags. So using that as inspiration, the final theme tonight is airline travel. Tim Ferriss and John Earl, you need to tell us something we don't know about airline travel. We'll give you one minute. While they're thinking, let me remind you to visit tmsidk.com to keep up with everything we're doing, including our schedule of live shows and how you can attend or be a contestant. If you would like to suggest a theme for a future episode or recommend a panelist, give us a shout on Facebook or Twitter. We go by tmsidk underscore show. Okay, John Earl, our audience winner, and Tim Ferriss, one of our panelists, It's time to tell us something we don't know about airline travel. John Earl, you first. All right. So if you've ever been in an airplane, uh, you know the emergency exit, right? And and you probably wondered, like, what would happen if somebody in mid-flight, like, tried to pull at it? Could they open the door? The answer is no. That door cannot be opened because of the pressure in the cabin of the airplane. So you don't have to worry anymore. Nobody's going to open that door in mid-flight. Good to know. Doesn't that happen in movies all the time, though? So you're saying that movies are not factual? Uh, Tim Ferriss, you got to tell us something about airline travel. Yes, so I will provide a travel tip when you're selecting your flights, in particular international. There are different types of pressurized cabins. 
So you can choose specific planes like the Dreamliner that actually pressurize to the equivalent of much lower altitudes. And therefore, you end up feeling more rested and less fatigued and have less of a recovery period when you use those flights. AJ Jacobs, I know you haven't had long, but have you right. found out anything about properly pressurized airplanes? Well, I did look into it a little, and, and it does seem there might be something to it. But you should keep in mind, we're all going to be obliterated by a gamma ray burst <laughs> very soon, so it really doesn't matter. Well, it is time <laughs> on that lovely note for our live audience uh, to pick a winner. I think we'll go with a throat vote. Now, remember the criteria for all our IDKs. Is it something you did not know? Is it something worth knowing? And is it true? All right, so we're going to start with John Earl and his story about emergency exits not being able to open in midair. Let's hear what you think of John Earl's IDK. And so I'll now ask you to vote with your throats for what Tim Ferriss told us about finding the properly pressurized airline cabin. We don't even need the Electoral College for that one. Tonight's winner is John Earl. Congratulations. And that's our show tonight. Thank you so much to our panelists, Tim Ferriss, Ann Pasternak, and Eugene Merman. Thanks to all our contestants, and especially to all of you for coming to play Tell Me Something. I don't know. Thank you so much. Good night. On the next episode of Tell Me Something I Don't Know, we are taking a deep dive with marketing guru Seth Godin, comedian and author Faith Saley, and technologist Nicholas Negroponte. The theme, Under the Hood. One of the implications for science is that if scientists have nothing better to do than study what kind of cheese you should eat before you go to sleep, they need to find another line of work. <laughs> That's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, Andrew Dunn, and Rachel Jacobs. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast, or you can listen at tmsidk.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>